Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. I first want to introduce uh, Sandy Powell, who I met yesterday, and I told her, um, I realized every time I see her, she's receiving an Academy Award, so we should probably give her one tonight, but she, she's been nominated ten times for Oscars, she's won three times uh, for Shakespeare in Love, The Aviator, and Young Victoria, her other credits include The Crying Game, Velvet Goldmine, um, for Todd, The End of an Affair, also with Julianne Moore. And uh, luckily, she, for us, she uh, has been collaborating with Martin Scorsese recently. She did the costumes for Gangs of New York, um, The Departed, The Aviator, Shutter Island, Hugo, and is working on the new film right now. So she's in New York. So please welcome Sandy Powell. <laughs> And um, Mark Friedberg, um, who we did a master class with a few, a few weeks ago, works for so many of, of the best directors, because they all know he's the most amazing production designer. He worked for, with Wes Anderson, with the Darjeeling Limited, and the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. He did Across the Universe with Julie Taymor, um, Pollock with Ed Harris, which we're featuring upstairs in the exhibition. Uh, for Ang Lee, he did The Ice Storm and Ride with the Devil, uh, Broken Flowers for Jim Jarmusch, Synecdoche, New York. Um, and he's working on Noah right now. Yes, the, Bible, the guy from the Bible. Um, for Darren Aronofsky, and we are so pleased. He actually just came in from Iceland um, where they're doing locations for, for Noah, and we're very pleased that he's with us. So please welcome Mark Friedberg. <laughs> and um, it's very special for me to be able to introduce Todd Haynes because he was here in 1988 when we showed Superstar, and that was a time when you could show Superstar and, and its glorious 16mm, and um, so it's been amazing to watch this career. He, um, of course, you know, his credits, Poison, Safe, Velvet Goldmine, Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, uh, Mildred Pierce, which has become our mo annual Mother's Day film. We show it every Mother's Day since we reopened here. Um, and I hope we do it again. And that's also um, designed by Mark, an incredible piece of work. So we're thrilled that he's back with us today. Please welcome Todd Haynes. <laughs> Sorry, okay. I took your seat. Um, so I, so I, I wanted to start. This is, I'm going to read a quote from a from a, a, actually a book about Todd's films, I think by James Morrison is the name. Um, but he writes, uh, this is why in Far From Heaven, the love and pain depicted is almost too big for any single character to contain. So it spills into the music, the wardrobe and decor, the colors and shadows on screen. Uh, the style allows expression to be spread into nonverbal arenas, uh, displacing the desire and villainy of the characters onto literally the walls and the clothes that they inhabit. So, uh, you know, I think that really captures a lot about the film, that it really is conceived in his visual terms. So, so could you talk, Todd, I guess, first about sort of how, how you conceive the film? I talked in the beginning a bit about these um, uh, color diagrams that you made and drawings and artwork that you made to start your process. Um, well, this was, a, this was a, a real extraordinary production uh, full of amazing memories of of working with these two extraordinary people and Ed Lockman and Elmer Bernstein who did the score and that's not even getting into the amazing actors uh, on the, on the, in the story and it was a, it was a labor of love because it was my own humbling um, sort of tutorial looking at the great work of Douglas Sirk and some of the work of Max O'Fools that also felt relevant to the storytelling. And, you know, really paying homage to this pretty unique uh, period of mid-century Hollywood studio filmmaking that really brought the whole tradition of the maternal melodrama, domestic melodrama, to a level of, of just um, technical brilliance and complexity, let alone dramatic... Um, complexity that's always sort of been part of, in my opinion, this genre. 
Um, and the amazing thing about the genre and the thing that allows for um, the visual language to take and the oral language, melodrama means music mm-hmm. and drama, um, literally, um, uh, is that um, it's often about, and I think this is best epitomized in the, the, the best films of Douglas Sirk, that was definitely my inspiration. Um, you know, it takes as its subjects really limited, ordinary people, not heroic people, people who you might call victims of their relative, their respective societies, who um, don't always have the wherewithal to handle the conflicts that they encounter in their lives. And the, and the kinds of conflicts that they encounter in their lives are the kinds of conflicts that we all encounter in life. They're about family and love and loss and infidelity. But these are limited, um, these are people with limitations, again, like us. And so they can't always articulate um, what they are experiencing. And there's a, you know, there's articles about characters and melodrama that talk about them always being in a state of semi-astonishment about, <laughs> about the fates that they're encountering as, as they unfold. Um, and you see this in, in you know, Jane Wyman or Lana Turner or some of the famous Cirque uh, heroines. And, um, but that limitation of being able to articulate and sort of master their problems means that it provides and makes necessary the whole cinematic language to fill in for those limitations. And so, um, as opposed to often what we experience in movies where the meaning is quadrupled by verbiage, by heroic characters who are in control of the narrative trajectory, (laughs) and then followed up with music and image, and and you're like, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. this really leaves these spaces where music, color, decor, costume, gesture, camera have a role to play and, an, and a necessary role, often sometimes to communicate things characters aren't capable of and sometimes to um, contradict what they are saying and to create a kind of counter uh, language. Uh, these decors are often claustrophobic and overwhelming and in some ways belittle the subjects themselves. So in all these ways, it calls upon the great um, uh, traditions of cinematic, visual, you know, uh, that's probably my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Telling the car, making sure that we got here. Um, And, um, sorry. And, you know, it enables people like myself to bring people like these guys on board and make use of their amazing abilities. So I'll, um, you know, hearing you talk about what you, you know, what the feelings were, what your intention was with the, with the drama, I'll read one more quote. It's the last quote I have, but, but I wanted to do this because um, it's me quoting you, quoting Rainer Werner Fassbinder, quoting Douglas Sirk, uh, which seems appropriate for this occasion. Um, And the quote is, um, you can't make films about things. You can only make films with things, with people, with light, with flowers, with with mirrors, with blood. You know, meaning that everything you're talking about has to be physicalized. So I guess uh, if you could talk about that process. So let's start maybe with with this idea of, of your color scheme, because I understand that you had long conversations, the three of you, I guess, and Ed, about, about color and how you would approach each scene. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it started with Cirque, who's known these, these mid-century masterpieces of his, Written on the Wind, All That Heaven Allows, The Magnificent Obsession, oh, imitation, imitation of Life, <laughs> um, are known for their use of color and for a kind of um, also a use of often wider angle lenses that keep the focal range... Um, Keep deep focus and keep deep space in focus, and create a kind of enamely um, hard edge, kind of harshness almost to the color palette. Um, and so, this was an opportunity for us to make color such a sort of seminal part of our uh, aesthetic 
discussion and, and the way that we really conceptualized um, these spaces that the characters inhabit and, and the changes in the, in the contradictory spaces. There's a lot of the film is about bound, very intensely zoned spaces that are transgressed or trespassed by the characters. Um, and so, yeah, we got to... I started by writing the script, but then spending time with scenes and just using um, Pantone color swatches and creating kind of a um, color temperature. The, the thing I should say that's really beautiful about probably the seminal film we looked at was um, All That Heaven Allows from 1956. And in that case, unlike Written on the Wind, which has a kind of more stoplight uh, primary color palette that's really in your face, pops at you, you know. Uh, All That Heaven Allows has this beautiful um, autumnal, but also, um, you know, um, uh, contradictory um, palette. Uh, what's the word? Complementary palette. Um, where you see elements of warm and cool in almost every frame of the film. And it, it kind of gives a kind of, you know, intuitive... Uh, um, resonance to the conflicting emotions um, and the sort of inre- unreconcilable conflicts that are that are told in the story, um, and so we really took that as a kind of liberty to um, to talk about complementary colors and um, and a mix a mixing of of uh, uh, temperature, emotional temperature, and, and uh, narrative temperature, I guess. And uh, so we started with these color swatches that were sort of almost designed scene by scene. But we spent, you know, at least you know, a day, if not more, just days. We actually translated the script into color. Into wow. color. There, was a, there was a color version of the script. So it's wow, like, it was, yeah. It was almost a scoring, in a way. It was a, a scoring. scoring session. It was. It really was. Yeah, and, you, and again, you could see these, um, uh, you know, these swatches upstairs. It's amazing. Yeah. Can you, can Sandy, can you talk, I, I guess, about how you, um, your sort of early discussions about this film? Because you had worked on the previous film, which was so different. Velvet Goldmine was just... Well, it was, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Subject matter was different, but I, don't, I think the, the the process was. You're a popular <laughs> guy. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's you. <laughs> it's either yeah. <laughs> it is. It's the car company. Okay. Oh. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> so. Subject was different, but I think the, the working process was, was similar. I mean, we had long, intense meetings during Velvet Goldmine, and Far From Heaven started out in the same way. Mm. Um, but I think the, the, the meetings I remember most are the ones with you, Mark, Ed. And it, it went on for days, actually. We had long weekends <laughs> where I remember we, we looked through um, All That Heaven Allows scene by scene, right. as well as going through our script and with your Pantone colours. Right. And taught and taught. And what I did with the colours, I, I, um, I sort of did a similar thing with the fabrics. I kind of bought lots of fabric swatches, mm-hmm. laid them out on a table, and I had them there. And I kind of, I think used the word intuitive, and I think it was an I- intuitive decision as to which colours to use where, knowing what Todd's colour choices were. But it wasn't ever anything like, oh, I'm going to make the dress pink because that's the pink he's got in his swatch. It was, I don't know, it just sort of came yeah. together instinctively, in, in, in a way. I sort of worked in the same way with the colors just spread out on a table in front of me. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and what could you say about, about this, this process? What was it like? Well, the, the part I loved the most about it was that you know, I actually met Todd in fine art class in college, <laughs> and that was, that, you know, so to work with a director who had such a, an understanding of what you can do with color. And it wasn't just that this would, scene would be this color and this would be that, but it was more that the costume might be doing this, and the wall might be doing that, but the light might be counteracting it, right. and all that, and that created a dynamic. And that's you know the, because the characters can never really say what they feel or feel what they say. It's the vibration between uh, uh, you know um, inherently oppositional things that that go together beautifully, that kind of allowed uh, that kind of allowed them to. Uh, in a way, help us to help them uh, figure out what they were feeling, or, or to to allow it out uh, into the world that way. So, mm-hmm. 
And um, how did you talk about, about the tone of the film? I mean, it's a film which it, at first, you know, maybe when you hear the idea of it, it seems like it'll, it's going to be sort of ironic or, or uh, you know, sort of postmodern in a way. And, and I guess more and more over time, I guess, as you re- revisit the film, um, you realize the emotional power of it, I think. I mean, uh, you know, I just watched it a couple yeah. of days ago and expecting this to happen. I hadn't seen it in many years. Um, and uh, I guess we just talked about, I, and I read, I, I found a director's statement because I had to go through all this old stuff for the <laughs> exhibition where I did say in a, some sort of a statement that was part of the script that I think we, we probably all got, you guys all got, was, you know, that, that, um, that it was, you know, in the, in the, tradition, the great tradition of, of Cirque and so forth, but, but that, we were, that I was self-conscious about doing it when we were doing it. And this was at yeah. the very beginning of uh, uh, George W. Bush's um, first year. Yeah. And right. it was before 9-11. In fact, 9-11 happened while we were in pre-production on right. Far From Heaven in New York when we were actually driving to Ground Zero. We were driving to 80 Center Street. Lower Manhattan, yeah. Yep. And it, it occurred then. But that, um, but that there was a, at least, you know, a, a, a mirroring or a, something about the sort of era of complacent consumerist, you know, culture that we were entering with Bush that felt relevant to the 50s in America or at least something that there could be a dialogue between the two in this film um, but that said, uh, I, I, I think somewhere in that statement, I said we would play this straight. Mm-hmm. You know, we would take this these stylistic traditions with a great deal of love and care, and not be sort of above them. Not be kind of you know that we, we would wear them. We would wear them. We would we would try to learn from them and and emulate them as best as possible. Now I knew at some level that that was a tremendous risk. That these would could be they were alienating at the time. I think in ways, uh, melodrama has a way of kind of pushing you out and then secretly sort of sucking you back in at the same time. And this has been true, I think, for melodrama from the beginning, even in you know its origins in 19th century literature and European canons of literature, popular, popular literature, because it was always there to kind of expose social contradictions and, and uh, limitations, but it was also a popular art form, popular form, you know, mass, mass form. So it, it had these sort of almost diametrically opposed instincts going on at the same time. And I think you feel that. You feel a push-me-pull-you. You feel a, a contradiction in them. You know, and it's even why Fassbender said they leave you feeling unsatisfied hmm. in an interesting way. Hmm. Um, could you, I guess, could either of you, Sandy or and Mark, talk specifically about the, the sort of materials you were working with? You were using an interesting mix of, of locations, I guess, and, and sets. Uh, um, the train station is Yonkers, I reckon, and which is never looks so good that train station. But, but um, you know, so you found some great locations to work with, but also we're building building sets. And the, the hard part and, and the exciting <laughs> part was that you wanted the sets to look like sets, and and so we were tra- trying to make our our, our uh, locations feel like sets in ways, and that's mm. part of part of Bush's America was right. the kind of artifice that we live in and right. so both saying that we've made this this isn't real and at the same time there's so much real that you're feeling because of that you have to live this way right and and so that was it took me a long time to try and figure out what that meant hmm. um to, to try and you know we spend so much time trying to make our sets look like they're <laughs> real and that and, and so that the characters can exist in them and if you notice that they're sets you've you failed horribly because the set is a background and it should be pushing the story forward and allowing it. And here, the set gets there about ten minutes before the actor does. Sometimes <laughs> and the colors are shiny and exactly. uh, and uh, so it, it, it took me a little while to kind of understand that. Of course, I haven't quite gotten over it now, and it's, it's like my you know favorite. <laughs> I like it when the sets get there early. That's that was nice. I, I just noticed the same thing with the costumes. Um, hmm. Normally, uh, when you make a costume for an actor 
once you'd made it, you'd work on it to make it look like it had been worn and look a bit old and, and look real. And I actually noticed in that, I thought, my God, everything looks brand new and crisp and fresh and bright. And it's not normally what I do. And I think we, it must have been the same thing. It's that sort yeah. of like everything's fresh off the press. Yeah. We, we were shooting in autumn and still painting the leaves to make them more colorful. Wow. It was phenomenal. And, and could you talk about the, the uh, costumes for Julianne Moore's character? Because there, you know, there's so many costume changes, and, and this is a, a character where you have to feel, you know, you feel this inner life and depth to her that she can't quite express uh, verbally. I mean, because she, all the characters in the film, I mean, it's one of the great things about the script. They're, they're sort of limited in what they can express, but you know there's a lot going on. Um, so, and so a lot of this comes through in, in the costume for her, I think. I, I only <laughs> caught the last 15 minutes and I wanted to watch it myself again because I haven't seen it for a while so I actually can't remember a lot of them <laughs> I know she had a lot and I guess yeah I mean we sort of tell the story through the costumes without being as obvious like it's uh, I wouldn't sort of give her a sad dress because she was feeling sad but somehow you use the colour and the, and the tone of what she's wearing to help convey the, the feeling of the, of the entire scene really and what's going on yeah um, and you had one logistical challenge. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was going to ask you about that, but go ahead. Yeah, I had a huge logistical challenge, yeah. Julianne announced she was three months pregnant at the beginning. At the beginning of that film. She was and, still uh, at the end? And, no, huh? She was still at the end? <laughs> she, she was bigger. <laughs> and she said to me, don't worry, don't worry, my last pregnancy, it didn't show till five months. And this pregnancy was completely different. After about three months and one day, she started expanding on a daily basis. <laughs> right. Uh, it was, and you stopped, um, didn't you stop shooting for a few weeks? Uh, when, uh, I mean, right no. at 9-11, didn't you? Or was that no, before we you were... Prepping. Oh, during yeah, prep, okay. But we were working in Bayonne, and oh, okay. the challenges of, of crossing rivers at that time made yeah. it very hard to, uh, to, yeah. to work. But it was... Actually, from the view from where we were working, which is an old Navy base, uh, was dead on of the uh, of the Twin Towers. So while we were downtown, the the rest of the crew was in Bayonne watching the towers burn and us not being able to connect with them. And some I always felt like that somehow was a you know was informed the experience yeah. in some terrifyingly real horrible way. Yeah, so, yeah. But, um, and wasn't there some discussion about the shape of because um, Eleanor wears the more pencil skirt yeah. the, silhouette. Well, the, well, the shape, the silhouette that Julianne has is slightly old-fashioned for where we were then. Right. I mean, it was, it was a more conservative, more old-fashioned look, right. which is why, at the end, her very last outfit is That's the straighter right. silhouette. Right. And I, that was about her sort of moving on to That's a new right. life mm. and sort of yes. getting rid of the old life exactly. and the old-fashioned But also skirts. The, because it was wasted with it a full kind skirt, of helped it a kind bit. of helped to It kind diminish. of helped. It. We just made the skirt bigger and bigger <laughs> to try and <laughs> but but we I actually sort of let the dresses out as far as they could go, and, and every belt she had was on the sort of by the end was on the hanging on the very end. <laughs> hmm. and, and when you and watch the performance, it's a brilliant sort of lexicon of of subtle sort of Hawaiian gestures at the midsection of Julianne's part to just kind of deflect attention. I don't know if it actually draws more attention to the midsection. As a result, but she um, she used to get bigger after lunch. I remember I remember actually telling I, I remember telling off her assistant when I saw her assistant carrying a piece of cake to her in the afternoon, saying, "Don't give her that. <laughs> get her back in that girdle after lunch." <laughs> but similarly, similarly, the way we conceived of the set because it was the first time that I really was a, ever. Um, and allowed to, or a, a, you know, made it necessary to have a, a set built for such a huge part of this film, which was the house, and that the way we, because we knew, I knew I wanted to emulate these high-low angles and these sort of places where characters would be looking down or up to each other and creating those kind of tensions, almost those little um, pools of of conflict, especially in the party scene with Frank. Um, and again, it was like constructing the shape to suit the dramatic needs of the film, which was an amazing um, opportunity that, that we had together. Now, I imagine that, uh, that on most films, um, the director and costume designer, production designer, might not have to work so closely together every step of the way. It, it sort of feels with this one that no detail can happen without 
this like intense conversation with involving all of you. I mean, is that true? That that like every little thing because it's it seems like I mean every uh, prop, every every you know, it's it's so it's so exquisitely detailed and meticulous. So so it seems like you like you can't do anything with that. But it's also not. Yeah. Uh, it's you know when you do reality, you your life has got layers and layers and layers of of uh, of what you have thing the things behind the books behind the, and and in in this case. The details were what we were seeing. They were particular. They were placed very, very self-consciously. Yeah. So they had to be considered. It wasn't, you know, there couldn't be a random thing just thrown there because it was only one or two or three. So, yeah. uh, so they all kind of, in a way, had to keep the story moving, but in, in another way, n- not necessarily be totally about where that character comes from all the time, which is what often is the case. Um, you know, a lot of times with the setting, you are telling the story of that person up to that moment what they what the, you know the way they've lived what's in their room what's around them and it wasn't always it wasn't so much in that way here it was more about almost sometimes setting them apart from their own world so that they almost didn't feel completely comfortable there so. okay let's open it up um, so just raise your hand and we'll bring the lights up a bit and I'll repeat the questions uh, right over here Thank you. That's okay, even in a museum, <laughs> to say that, yeah. It's hip. <laughs> looking, at Velvet, looking at Velvet Goldmine and the way you dealt with the, the male gaze in that film, and then you look at this film, is there, as the writer and director, um, is there ever a moment where you look at the Dennis Quaid character as you're developing him and you're like, oh man, you know, uh, I did all this with that topic in this one film. Now, do you ever want to give him more than like, He's the the victim of the heart wants what the heart wants and nothing more because I just felt like I I really enjoyed this film and this isn't a bad thing but I'm just it's <laughs> a loaded question. Is there ever a moment where you wanted to give him more as opposed to like he's the racist closet gay guy who just wants what he wants and he's gonna get a divorce? Is there ever a moment where you wanted to give him more, mm-hmm. more of a because Velvet Goldmine is. I, I, I love that movie, and I've never seen a film like that in the past, in, in these times. Yeah. So I know it's a loaded question. I apologize. Yeah. No. Oh. The, I don't know if people heard the question. It's about whether um, the character of Frank, the Dennis Quaid character in Far From Heaven, um, as opposed to the way gay identity is explored in uh, Velvet Goldmine, if I ever um, met, wanted to. Uh, give him more of a central role, I assume. And I, I, I didn't. I, I, I felt I really, from the very beginning, I, I, there was something about the, melodr- the domestic drama being so rooted in the female character that I was really interested to see how, um, uh, you know, al- although all three characters are complexly intertwined in this story, and I wanted it to have that kind of diagrammatic interdependency where each person just in pursuing their desires casts pain on the other in a tight web you know where events are acted upon the people they don't you know they they are kind of no one there's no villain you know people are just being human and trying to figure out their lives but it ends up you know indicting and and affecting and and hurting uh, the others around them Um, but I still felt that it was almost most interesting to see. It wasn't about, it didn't take a liberationist position, this film. It was really about how we all have to sort of hold up the social, or, the, or really what it's saying, I guess, is that the woman, although these three kinds of oppressions can be compared, that in a way the woman is on the bottom rung and has to maintain the dignity and the continuity of the family and that institution and in a way has to surrender the most and give up the most and ironically in the 50s a gay man who can hide you know who can disappear or or make his desires selectively visible um, has ultimately more freedom to maneuver and that the the black man who's so overly visible as black you know is over interpreted um, and Frank has hiding places that 
Raymond and Kathy don't. So, but I, I felt that I wanted to show that unique burden that the woman has and the, 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 sac- the maybe extra burden of sacrifice that she has to um, show. Could just ask, there are two, two decisions that you made that are interesting in this regard, I think. One, um, I, I think you said that you had, you had thought about having a more explicit sex scene when, when she discovers Frank in the office uh, kissing um, the man, but you, you had thought about maybe doing a more explicit sex scene and uh, decided not to, and that was interesting to me to read that. And then also there's a, the, the only moment, I think, in the film when there's uh, obscenity is when, when, when right. Frank says, you know, I just want to fucking get it over with. Right. And it's a powerful moment because it's the only time in the film right. and then, then her reaction to that yeah. is so, like, she's so shocked. Yeah. 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 No, it was a matter of, of extremes, I guess. The whole thing was yeah. a matter of balancing. It was, it's such a tightly wound um, uh, generic tradition and, and specific story and, and c- kinds of characters, obviously. And even within the constraints of melodrama itself and, the, and adhering to the 50s traditions, these were also people who wouldn't be able to express themselves very freely. And for someone like Frank to undergo what he's undergoing is radical. And to even say fuck is radical. And to kiss a man is radical. So all of these things had, had measures of degree that kind of had to be balanced against others, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And, and they almost seem stronger for the restraint. Yeah, yeah, if you just yeah, go out and totally, right, yeah. you know, if you just go <laughs> right, out and do it, totally. then okay, you've done it. Absolutely. But the fact that there, it was still sort of held, yeah, know, everything was kind of held. I think definitely makes it something that we can each we can relate to rather right. than just telling it to us. Yeah, and then you know Raymond kissing Kathy's hand, <laughs> you know, becomes as strong a thing as Dennis kissing that guy. You know. So in a way, everything is turned up to eleven, except right. the people who are down around. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, back here. Go ahead. So it well uh, yeah if you transpose the story to a, a modern you know if it was set have you seen uh, Lee Fear Eats the Soul the Fassbender I have I've been working on Raymond Fassbender yeah that's a really interesting um, thing to see because it's Fassbender's um, remake of um, All That Heaven Allows and he set it in contemporary Germany in a working class setting um, with a you know the Jane Wyman, Rock Hudson stories about middle class older woman meets younger man gardener, and uh, Fassbinder makes it a, a working, an old, a much older, like sixty year old, fifty, sixty year old um, uh, clean, you know, um, lavatory cleaner, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the word? Janitor, jan- female janitor, and a Moroccan Turkish Turkish Moroccan man, um, uh, and black Turk. Is he Turkish? He's or is he Moroccan? I can't. Yeah, remember which. Anyway, um, and it's it's but it's in contempt. It's um, it's incredibly powerful. It still maintains follows very strictly melodramatic conventions, um, but does modernize the setting. It's the art gallery. The art gallery. Okay. Over here. <laughs> what was it like working with the child actors? Yeah, uh, they, they were they were great kids. They were fantastic kids to work with. Um, but what's tricky about this film and it's sort of inherent in Cirque is that children are often little monsters. They're also little they're little um, emblems of patriarchal belief and oppressive uh, <laughs> feelings. Right. So they're. There's no real sentimentality for the kids. Um, even even Mad Men shows so much more sympathy, uh, I think, in the way kids are dealt with than than Cirque does, and and the way we tried to sort of follow that in that tradition here. So it's really tricky. Like you see that moment with the son after you hear about um, Raymond's daughter getting hurt 
Um, and he's like, you know, he's like, you know, he's like, Dad, it's, he's kind of excited about this horrible act of violence that occurred in school. And then he's like, you know, well, why don't you turn the, the TV set on, Skip, or whatever, you know, whatever he says. And he's like, sure, Dad, you know. And it's like, <laughs> you sense this weird, you know, dismissal of the severity of that event that aligns the men with each other. And you see sort of a, a link in that. You know, you see, and you see the, Femin, you know, femininity and issues of, of how a woman is supposed to be also shared among da- mother and daughter and that early scene in the mirror as well. Okay. Anybody else? Over here? I guess the fact that you moved into television sort of answers this question. <laughs> but I'm wondering, do you think that movies that are this original and that don't have obvious, like, you know, they're not biopics or something, like if they have pre-existing references, they're surf films, do you think they can still be made? Or do you think that movies on, at this kind of scale are really hard to do? Well, Okay. Um, well, he said since you moved into tel- television, but I guess by, by doing Mildred Pierce. But w- would it be hard to do a, a film like this now as a theatrical film? I mean, the funny thing is that although we all knew we were taking tremendous risks by adhering this strictly and honoring so closely these these you know rigid conventions, narrative conventions, and and that let's face it, although noirs continue to be made, westerns continue to be made. Genres associated with women, like domestic dramas, are are sort of denigrated, and they're looked down upon. And male-associated dramas, I think, maintain a currency in contemporary culture in ways that female-driven, uh, you know, where female audiences are associated, don't. It was a risk. It was a complete and total risk, and I consider it as much of an experiment as any of my other films. But yeah. what was so remarkable and surprising, I think, to everybody involved is that this became my crossover movie. This is the most successful you know, movie that I've made in terms of critical acclaim and that it really crossed over to a wider audience and that it did, it made me feel so thrilled, not just about the film and all the great people I got to work with on it, but that this genre works and, and, is, and, and continues to both critique um, American c- culture and and make and push you out enough to make you think about all those things, but then draw you back in emotionally at levels that you really feel. And I remember hearing the story about a um, a, a, fr- a woman who worked in the film business who had been meaning to see Far From Heaven, didn't get around to it, had a screener, finally watched the screener, had a three-year-old child who was s- sleeping on her lap when she finally got around to watching Far From Heaven. And she figured the kid would go to sleep. And she's watching Far From Heaven, and she gets to the end of the movie, and she looks down, and her kid is crying. <laughs> and she said, honey, what's the matter? And the, and the little kid said, mommy, how come that nice man can't be with that nice lady? Oh. And I was like, damn, man, that is so cool. Like, <laughs> you know, that this could be a movie that, you know, the punk kid out of, like, you know, um, comp, you know, whatever, um, you know, critical studies college with tattoos would take her grandma to. And they could both enjoy the experience equally, but with that very different, you know, reasons, you know. But to make it today, he, Frank would have to be a cyborg double agent. Well, uh, <laughs> it was, it is ten years old. A lot, I guess, things have really. But she'd probably be able to make it on HBO. I mean, that's probably the irony. be able to make yeah. it on HBO. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, right over here. Get used to it. Can I go first? Yeah, please. Yeah. So I, uh, I bought my son a, a Nikon, a used Nikon uh, FM2 camera because uh, he wanted a film camera. And uh, I only shot film cameras from when I was five until uh, I don't know, you know, seven or eight years ago when I forgot they existed. And we shot some pictures and we printed them, and they were beautiful. They're so beautiful. There's grain and things and developed. uh, We went to you know the lab that's left, Uh, that one in Chelsea. So I don't know. We that's how I grew up. I'm I'm you know or he had he he pulled out some vinyl, scratched the needle across and and heard bass again and it was beautiful. Uh, But I, I you know there's it's on the other hand you can shoot at night without lights now. It's you know it's the world we live in so. And depth of 
Yeah. Well, even we it, does. we, it was we saw it uh, on HD television last night, and it, it was a whole other thing. I mean, that, the yeah. the difference is on a on a film print. Uh, yeah, I think we all, there's a little more control too about what you see uh, in, a, in a film print when it's finally been timed, and once things are sort of out in the digital world that they're on a phone and on a screen yeah. and on a, this all that coming from the same file. So, um, you know, that part of it is going to be harder to hold on to that kind of control. Yeah, it just felt Yeah, I mean it. You know, it was. It took an adjusting when I first came in. We just came in for the end, Sandy and I, and uh, it looked. I, I mean, there was still some grain that that I could see in the HD, but um, but it's not the same at all. I'm mean, I'm just still happy people are still shooting on film. I mean, I've I've never I've yet to shoot on uh, on digital a digital camera, and it's not. It's I, I, for every, in every case it's been because I just felt the film camera, whatever, if it was six, even 16. We shot Mildred Pierce purposefully on 16 millimeter hmm. so that it would accrue grain because even the high-speed lenses today and the high-fast stocks um, make, when you, when you transfer to HDTV, which I knew it would end up on HDTV, you lose you even you lose the grain. It's it's so electric, you know. So we went the other direction, and and it actually ca- saved a little money, and it and it restored grain, and it gave it some real, some real, you know, uh, texture, which is beautiful. It looked good on the screen. It did. Oh yeah, I know, and it really holds. Up. It's beautiful on the screen. But um, but yeah, the, people still shoot film. They pe- they shoot film. You know, they shoot TV shows on film still. I'm sure also when color film started coming out, these kinds of conversations yeah. were going on. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's, it's something we'll get used yeah. to. It would be better to have a good film print. I mean, the reality is they, the studios won't, don't have them. You know, so we asked, actually. I, I agree, actually agree with you. You know, I think as good as this looks, and it looks fantastic, it would look better on a good print, but that sure. print doesn't exist. Yeah. They well they could they could own one in which case they they'll keep it in, in their archive. So there's a few archival prints uh, scattered around possibly, but it is the rea- it's sort of what Mark said to get used to it. You know, so so there's. But you can also take an SLR out now and make your own film. So uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it's yeah. Lots but of but uh, I agree, especially when a film is um, this exquisitely photographed you know you want to see it like the way that you're imagining or the way that you remember seeing it the first time yeah. so that that would be ideal yeah go ahead oh right over here you haven't gone yet um, well, you guys are in a position <clears throat> excuse me it seems like to comment more about a, a film print versus digital um, I don't it seems like it's a giant leap backwards. They've almost tried to destroy the look of, that you put in the film. I don't accept the inevitability argument. Um, you guys have the position to actually to speak more about that. Um, could you comment on what's going on? Starting from... It seems like shooting on film, you're still doing it. They take a print and basically destroy it if they can. <laughs> Project it. It's the elephant in the room. Nobody says a word. People say life goes on. Um, I don't understand why we're going backwards. Uh, the, well, it's a comment just more <laughs> well, about that, that brought the room what down. the trade-off yeah. and the loss of what? That sort of brought things down to yeah, a depressing a level. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I agree. You know, the studios, um, Fox uh, has, was the first studio to announce that they'll, after this year, they, they will not make film prints. I mean, if a film comes out from Fox or Fox Searchlight, it's not film. And, um, you know, by the end of 2013, no new, you know, literally no new movies will be made in film. You know, there won't be There's film. There's very few labs left. I'm sorry? There's very pl- few places you can actually process film left. Right. So there, I mean, so for us, you know, this is a whole history of film that, where we want to keep showing film prints, but we are at a point, you know, where 
there won't be film, you know, film, there won't be films on, made on film any, like in, in the very, very near future. I don't know, it's Noah, I mean, what's happening with, Noah won't be released on. Shooting on film. Shooting on film, but will be released. Released on iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> iPhone scope. <laughs> okay, so um, back, back there, we could, we could talk about the film. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I guess if you could talk about casting some of the extra, some of the background atmosphere in the film. It was along the same kind of criteria Mark was talking about in terms of how to set, dress sets where, you know, um, we worked with great cast, extras casting in, out of New York and they were all like, well, Hartford, Connecticut in 1957 had a large population of Italian-Americans and so these are the kind of faces that we're suggesting. And I said, no, sorry, we want everybody to look like there in, from Central Casting in the back lot at Universal Studios in 1957. So we went, so we reverted to these all, basically a lot of these, a lot of these extras were, you could tell they were ex-models, you know, but gray, with gray, silver, silver-tipped hair, because they were all very patrician and very tall and sort of perfect looking. And they kind of needed to move badly, you know, and Tim Bird, R.A.D., who directs the A.D., t- traditionally directs extras, Got a real again. He worked completely out of his normal, the normal naturalistic language and tradition of trying to make extras look real, which actually is a really and often failed. Um, uh, <laughs> they're often from another planet. The extras in movies, no matter how real they're supposed to try to be, he got had the fun of trying to make them look unreal and stiff, you know. And so it, again, it was just counterintuitive to the way we usually, uh, you know, operate in production. But it was it was fun, and it made you. It just made you think about because it's all artificial. Film is artificial, you know. And and this is a a celebration and a. Uh, complicated, I think, uh, elevation of, of, of how the artificial and the authentic in terms of emotion interplay. And somehow, sometimes when you, when you uh, don't try to imitate reality, um, something even more real happens because it's allowing something that it's always about translating. In a way, it's almost more honest. It's yeah. almost more honest. You're not lying. You're being honest. And so, and a viewer always has to do something to make this real for them. And in a weird way, the more you cater to that, the less you're hmm. sort of using what is innate to our abilities as spectators to, wait, to fill in, to, you know, think around, to, bo- to both think and feel at the same time, I guess, is, is what some, you know, has been the goal of some artists and, and creators so it's a just a it's, and and that's just more true for melodrama than other g- generic traditions and it's just one that i continue to um you know go back to in my mind i just find it to be so interesting complicated i would uh, do want to ask sandy like in relation to this idea like what your research was or, or what your references were because was it all you know, the movie 1950s instead of the real 1950s? I was just, as, as Todd yeah. was saying just then about um, the, the idea was to make it not look real. I, I look at that again and I think, my God, it looks really authentic. It, it looks really authentically like a 50s film. Right. Rather, it <laughs> right. Looks, it right. really looks real. Like a, um, so <clears throat> in answer to that question, yeah, I did look at a lot of films. I looked at people dressed in films with a beard. I did look at... at um, things like Sears catalogues and, and fashion from the period as well, but really the main inspiration came from how people looked in films as opposed to how people really looked on the street. Yeah, yeah. And the weird thing is that we, I remember getting so many reactions from people when we showed Far From Heaven would come up to me and say, that's exactly what it was like in the 50s. <laughs> that's my life. Wow. And you realize how much you know, popular culture, film, <laughs> mediate our lives and are and maybe it, sometimes in history more than others you know yeah and and certainly the 50s 
you know, one would imagine that would be maybe more true during that period. But I, I love that and how memory is even, you know, affected by uh, popular uh, images. And okay. We'll just uh, take one more. So right over here. Go ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Todd, were you been wearing? Look who's tri- doing it now. <laughs> well, at least the hair. Oh, what velvet gold mine? Yeah, hair. velvet yeah. gold mine. That's what I. Was yeah, I'm reverting. Yeah. Actually, well, it depends on the film, but yeah, you do find yourself. Um, yes, you do. I mean, I, did, I didn't necessarily in Far From Heaven. I'm sure there would have been some element of it that I did adopt. Um, but you can't help it. You either, get, you either get drawn in by the color or the texture and, and definitely the shapes. And quite often I do end up, um, if I'm, depending on what it is, I, I ended up... Actually, I had these made last year when I was doing Hugo from the tailor that was building clothes for Ben Kingsley, believe it or not. But I mean, um, <laughs> sort of a little bit 1930s. But I, yeah, I, you can't help getting inspired by it and influenced do you do that with Noah? Are you, are you dressing Old Testament these? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but you did. Didn't you take most of the furniture home with you? I. Uh, oh yes. I, right. I brought home Mark's clothes. <laughs> really? I did. They dressed my house. Yeah, I've been living in Far From Heaven ever since in Portland. <laughs> in my, uh, I, I just recently put on eBay the the diagonal couch. Is it still really? Up? Is it still up? No. But well, you put it on, I'm sorry. Right you, put, you put it on eBay? Did you say as seen in? <laughs> I did. We, oh. we finally did. Well, no, we didn't advertise it that way, but we just told them after they bought it oh. as a little bonus. <laughs> but I, I was reading an article about, about the film and people were, um, you know, putting things on eBay, describing them as far from heaven style. Right. I mean, and they weren't from the movie, but it just became sort of Well, a, before something else Right. Followed in that's popular right. culture. That's right. Yeah, you yes. <laughs> That's right. Right. Those are all those descriptions were changed. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, I hope you all come back uh, with iPhones to show us your next films. <laughs> but um, thank you so much. Thank you, David. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.